John said it a little more simply. He said it like this. God knows everything possible. Now, he'd already said something very similar to what Thiessen had said. But he knows everything possible. He has knowledge of everything that could have existed in the future. He knows the outcome of every alternative. I want you to go with me to the book of Isaiah for a moment. Let's just read the Bible saying. If these are definitions by men, that's fine. But what does the Bible say? Isaiah 41, for example, and there, there are many that you can choose from, but we'll choose this one. Starting in verse 21, God is arguing against the idols and the fact that, of how different he is here. He says, Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reason, saith the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth. Show us what shall happen. Notice that. Is there anybody or anything out there, any God even, so-called, that can tell you what will happen? Let them show the former things what they be, things in the past, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them. That's like this definition saying the outcome of every alternative. And know the latter end of them or declare us things which are to come. Notice that. Verse 23. Show the things that are to, become, that are to come hereafter. God can do this, but he's challenging anyone else to do that. That we may know that you are God's. Yeah, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed or awed and behold it all together. Notice as he goes on in chapter 42, as he continues this discussion in verse 9, when he says, Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Now, when we say, Does God know my eternal destination. Does he know if Michael White's going to be in heaven or hell? What God is saying is, I've already told you that. In fact, what I've told you is, I can tell you anything before it happens, before it springs forth. I know it. Look again at chapter 44. Turn a page or so over and look at verse 7 of chapter 44 as he continues. And, And who as I shall call and shall declare it? And set in order for me, since I anointed the ancient people, and the things that are coming, and shall come, let them show unto them. See, God is very clear. He knows everything that is past. He knows everything that is present. He knows what's coming. So God already knows my eternal destination because of the extent of God's omniscience that it is absolute. God is absolutely omniscient. He knows everything. He knows everything that's past. Jesus said in John 8 and verse 58, Before Abraham was, I am. I know everything. I know everybody. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in God and, of course, in Christ. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 14, the fact that God can recall and bring to, to judgment everything that any of us has ever done, good or bad. And we see that scene in Revelation 20. And God knows everything in the present. Job 34 and verse 21, or Proverbs, or Psalm 139, that great psalm of David. You know, where could you go and escape the presence of God? And the knowledge that God has, because God knows everything. I'll read for you Hebrews 4 and verse 13. And it just talks about the fact that we are naked before God. He knows everything. All things are naked in the sight of Him with whom we have to do. But we're talking about the future. And God knows everything in the future. I'm not going to go to Daniel, but you can do this on your own. Chapters 2, 4, 7, and 11. And I just extract those because the, the detail is incredible, and yet God 
knows the details of the future destruction of Jerusalem. But look with me at Isaiah again, and let's see chapter 46. And is this not exactly what we're talking about when we're looking at our eternal destination? Chapter 46, go down with me to verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there's none else. I am God, and there's none like me. Notice verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning. Now, if you go back to the original language, this is what God says here. I can declare everything. I have knowledge of everything from the beginning of time, the beginning of man, to the end of time and the end of man. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done. I'm not yet in heaven or hell, but God can declare which, because God has that extent of all knowledge. My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. So when we're looking at, let me just wrap up here, what have we said? God already knows my eternal destination. Why? Because God is omniscient. God knows everything. To what extent? Everything that is past, everything that is present, everything that is future, including the end of my beginning, according to Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. God does know how to, let's try that again. God does have the ability to know everything. And God clearly tells things before they happen. We see that. There is no doubt about that. Because all of us in this room believe that he foretold things about the Christ. And things that must take place. We would see language like that taken. But one of the phrases that Michael used over and over was this ability to recall or to remember something. He used Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 14. God is able to bring into judgment every deed, whether good or evil done in the body. You'd see similar things like that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where we would have to all have to stand before the Lord. Well, does that mean that He knows everything that I am going to do right now? Or does that mean when I stand before Him, He will have knowledge of everything that I have done in my life? I believe it's that He will know everything that I've done in my life. I want you to think about some scriptures that point to maybe God actually not knowing everything. I want you to go to the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 6. I want you to think about something that he said here. Is that God is able to declare before something happens what will happen. That is true. In Genesis 6, God declares a hundred plus years before it happens that mankind and all the animals are going to be destroyed off the earth. But I want you to notice some interesting language in verse 5. And the Lord Jehovah saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. And the Lord was sorry, or he was grieved, that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. 
So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, for I am sorry that I have made them. I want you to think about this for a second. If God knew that he was going to have to destroy the world, and that man that he created in Genesis 1, 2, 3, in that picture, remember at the end of chapter 1, after man is created, Genesis 1 and verse 31 says, and he saw that it was very good. If he knew that all of this terrible was going to happen and that there was going to be a time here in a few years, would he be sorry that he made man? No, he'd be like, this is exactly what was going to happen. This is what I wanted to happen because this is my purpose is that I wanted to destroy the earth. But no, no, no. Notice how verse 5 said, he, the Lord saw that man's thought was on evil continually. And he was sorry. He wished he hadn't. He changed his mind. He was grieved because what he had planned and what he had put into place for man has now been corrupted. Okay? Let me say, what does it have to do with individuals? Well, it clearly shows in one sense that God doesn't know how every individual is going to respond. Because otherwise, he wouldn't have made it this way. You say, well, okay, fine, whatever. I want you to think about something else. I want you to go to Genesis chapter 18. Another judgment that is brought on by the Lord. The judgment that is brought on Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, people that are going to be killed. Entire cities wiped out. I want you to notice the language very carefully in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 18. It says in verse 18 here, Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation of the earth. Verse 19, For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So the Lord said, i got to go tell him. So verse 20, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, And their sin is very grave. Here's the phrase, verse 21. I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Does that sound to you like he knew every single individual's heart in Sodom and Gomorrah at that time? It doesn't, right? I will go down and I will see and I will find out and I will know. Not I know already. I will know. You say, Wes, that's not the case. Well, think about the end of the chapter, right? Remember what Abraham argues? He's like, don't get mad at me. But if there are 50 righteous people, will you spare the cities? And I want you to notice specifically what the Lord says. In chapter 18 here in verse 26. The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous in the city. Look back. Abraham says, don't get mad. Here's 40 of them. Look what he says in verse 28. Verse 28, he says, I will not destroy destroy it if I find 45. What about verse 30? 
Suppose there are 30 found there. I will not do it if I find 30. Is God a liar? Because he's saying, if I find 30, I won't destroy it. Does he already know if there are 30 there? I want you to think about that. If that's the case, then he's somewhat lying. He could, he could flat out say to Abraham, there's not 30 there. I'm going to go ahead and destroy it. So, if I find. See, God doesn't know exactly what is going to happen. I want you to think about it from another perspective of judgment on a group of people. I want you to think about in the book of Jonah. Go with me to Jonah, the third chapter. In Jonah, the third chapter, Jonah finally gets to Nineveh. And I want you to notice the cry against Nineveh, verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Or excuse me, it's in verse 4 there. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called a fast and all these things, right? God says, forty days, your kingdom is done. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Did God know how Nineveh would respond? Because it seems to me that his indication and that what he said he was going to do was that he was going to destroy that place in 40 days. And that was what he intended to do based off of those people. But when he saw that they turn from their evil ways, then he relented. See, if he already knew what they were going to do, it's just a big charade that he's going through. Because he knows that they're going to turn, and so going in and saying that I'll destroy in 40 days is a lie. Because he's not going to destroy it in 40 days. He's just threatening to destroy it in 40 days. But you see, there's a difference. He was going to destroy it in 40 days. But they changed. God didn't know exactly how Nineveh would respond in this final, final judgment. I'll come back to some other things in a moment. All right, Wes. Um... You said that God does know all because God can recall, and that is true. You asked the question in looking at Genesis 6 and the situation of the world in the time of Noah, does that mean that he knows everything, quote, I am going to do, or, quote, that he will have knowledge of what I've done? The answer to that is both. He knows everything I'm going to do, everything I have done, and uh, he knows everything I'm doing right now. So when you look at Genesis 6... And verse 5, and God begins to talk about being grieved, etc. And we look back at the creation and what God intended for man. The reason God grieves is because man doesn't do what God wants. Not because God does not know what will happen. In fact, the whole planning to offer Jesus a sacrifice knows God, 
I mean, shows God knows what is going to happen, but he grieves when people do not do what he wants them to do. God knows everything that is past, everything that is present, everything in the future. But let's go further with that statement. Let's make it particular to what Wes kept bringing up. Because God knows past, present, and future, does that mean that his omniscience extends to the knowledge of one's ultimate fate, whether it's the people in the time of Noah, the people in the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, the people in the time of Jonah, the people in Jesus' day, or you and me today? Does, does it mean that God's knowledge extends to a person's ultimate fate and his ultimate destination in heaven and hell? And the answer is yes. And here's why I would say that. Because God knows the eternal destination of all people. If you remember what we read from Isaiah 46 and verse 10, Wes did not look at Isaiah, but all of these statements are clear. Verse 10 again says, declaring the end from the beginning. You notice God doesn't qualify there. Anything there is, God can declare the end from the beginning. He can declare the end of, uh, from the beginning of the creation. He can declare that for the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, Nineveh, wherever. And God can for me. If you look at Jeremiah, we go another book over and look at Jeremiah 17 and verse 10. Notice what it clearly says here. Man's heart can be deceitful. He can be wrong. He can fool himself and others. But I, the Lord, verse 10... Search the heart, I try or test the reins, what's inside a person, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. I know it all. And God knows who will be destroyed. Go over with me to Romans 9 and notice this passage. And I'll try not to spend too long here, but the point is made. Paul is talking about mercy. Paul is talking about salvation without uh, doubt here. And when you look at Romans 9, and we'll cut right in the middle of it, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, verse 15. And I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So then it is not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but of God that shows mercy. But that's not where it leaves off. It goes on to describe God. And it describes God as a person who cannot be argued against for having this great knowledge. And Paul talks about his wondrous knowledge. And he says, who are you, verse 20, that would reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him that framed it or formed it? Why have you, have you made me thus? Doesn't the potter have power over the clay, etc.? Notice verse 22. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering, notice this, endured with long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. This answers Nineveh. It answers Sodom. It answers the people in the time of Noah. Because you see, if God says, I'll wait a hundred years, because you had the opportunity, but I still know what is going to happen. So in the end of the hundred years, Noah, you've got to get in a boat. Because they're not going to repent. They are vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and I know that. Just like I knew in the days of Pharaoh. Just like I know in every day about every people. Let's give a couple of examples we can easily see. We'll talk about two apostles, Peter and Judas. If we look at Luke chapter 22, when Peter is boasting, you know, I'll go to death with you, prison, etc. Jesus describes his denying Christ three times. But then in verses 31 and 32, he says, Satan has desired to have you, but I prayed for you. And then you'll notice he says, when you are converted. What does that mean he knew? 
he knew that Peter would repent, and he knew Peter would be converted, and he knew Peter would be righteous. The thief on the cross. First of all, he's saying all these things against Jesus. Then he's rebuking the other thief. So which is it going to be for him? Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. I know your future. I know your faith. I know where you will be. Just like he knows about everyone. But on the other hand, there's Judas. Judas was a devil. In John 6, in verses 64 and 70, it's clear that Jesus already knew what was going to happen to Judas. He knew it as far back as the feeding of the 5,000. He knew it in John 13. In fact, turn over with me and listen to Jesus in John 13. And as they're sitting there at the institution of the Lord's Supper and all of this event, look at John 13 down in verse 18. I don't speak of you all, when he's talking about the one that will fall. I don't speak of you all. I know whom I've chosen. But that the scripture might be fulfilled. He that eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes. We're not talking about a simple historical event here. We're talking about a man sinning and going to hell. And I tell you before it comes so that you may believe that I am. I am God. I know past, present, future. And I know when a person is going to sin and seal his faith. And if you turn a couple of pages over in John 17, when he's praying as Judas is out there, notice, selling him out and all of this kind of thing, he even tells the Father, down in verse 12, I haven't lost any of the people you've given me except the son of perdition or destruction that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Now, I want you to understand something. When he's saying that to the apostles in John 13, and he's saying that to the Father in John 17, that is before the next morning. When Judas regrets what he's done, goes out and hangs himself and, quote, seals his fate. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is omniscient. Jesus knows everything past, present, and future. Jesus particularly knows if an individual like Peter will go to heaven. And he particularly knows if an individual like Judas will go to hell. Because he is God, because he knows everything. In fact, you could even go back to Psalm 109 and see this prophecy about Judas that Peter repeats in Acts 1. And we could even say that in the Psalms, that long before the birth even of Judas, God knew he would go to hell. Because God knows everything, past, present, and future. So when we look at God's omniscience, when we look at the extent of God's omniscience, uh, I want to go back. (laughs) Okay. When we look at the extent of God's omniscience, God knows everything that is past. Before Abraham was, I am. God knows everything that is present. David said, your knowledge is too wonderful for me. I can't go anywhere to escape your presence. I can't do anything you wouldn't know about. God, you know everything about me. But God knows everything in the future. Declaring the end from the beginning, Isaiah 46. And that even extends, obviously, to an individual's eternal, whoops, eternal destination. Isaiah 46, he, Michael used some very specific words there. There is no qualifier. There is, uh, goes right to the individual. Well, the context is the qualifier. He's declaring things 
that have been planned from the end to the beginning or beginning to the end, all of those things. I don't have time to go and deal with that. But what is clear throughout Isaiah 41, 46, other passages in Isaiah, is the difference between God, a living God, and an idol. No idol that they could go to could tell them anything. God could tell them whatever he wanted to tell them. Because he knows those things. Now, does that translate into knowing the eternal destination of every individual? Well, he used Judas as an example, right? He said it was a death sentence from Psalm 109. Well, if you look back at Psalm 109 and you look at some of these other things, there's a lot of things that David writes that fit a guy that also hanged himself in the Old Testament by the name of Ahithophel. You might just say all these different types of things. So, does God know individuals? He said Romans chapter 9 is, and I quote, no doubt talking about salvation. Well, actually Romans 9 is not talking about salvation. It is talking about the choice between Isaac and the other son of Abraham through whom the promise would come. It is not talking about, I chose Jacob before he was ever born to be saved, but Esau I hated. That is not it. Or Pharaoh, I created him so that I could show my power in him, so he would be destroyed in hell. That is not what Romans 9 is teaching, but we do not have time to talk about that, so you can't say without a doubt, no doubt it is about that, When if we had time to examine that text closely, we would find out it's actually not that. Okay? Now here's what I want you to see. Does God know what every individual will do? I want you to go to Genesis, the 22nd chapter. In Genesis chapter 22, we have a guy that was chosen to get the promises Brought through him. The man's name is Abraham. Okay? We would think that because Abraham was chosen with the promises, that meant he was going to be saved. God chose him to be saved. Well, that's not the case at all. I want you to see Genesis chapter 22 and verse 1. So after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. Take your son, your only son. Whom Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there. What is the Lord doing with Abraham? Testing him. We know how he was willing to offer up Isaac, right? The Lord stops him. I want you to notice what is said down in verse 12. Look very carefully at this. He said... Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. I want you to think about that. That was a legitimate test to find out, is Abraham really putting his faith in me that he will do anything? And Abraham did, and he said, now I know that you fear God. I want you to just 
let that phrase sink in. That is an individual that he knows very well. But he didn't know that. Is it because he couldn't know that? Or that he chooses not to know that? He chooses not to recall every single thing that an individual does. Or I want you to think about another individual. Think about King Ahab. King Ahab is given a message in 1 Kings chapter 21 that there, he will be killed. His descendants, they will be killed. His wife will be killed and they will lick, the dogs will lick up the blood and all these things. I want you to notice 1 Kings chapter 21 and verse 27 of this. Now 1 Kings chapter 21 and verse 27 It says the following. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and he put sackcloth on his flesh and he fasted and he lay in sackcloth and he went about dejectedly. Now look down in verse 29. The Lord says to Elijah, Have you seen how Ahab humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days But in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. He's going to bring the disaster. But because of how Ahab reacted, the Lord dealt differently with that. With the individual. It was going to be, his eternal fate was not set right there. Now we know that that doesn't last long. Ahab goes right after the false prophets. But it's not determined, it is not a hell sentence at that point, because if he had turned, if my people, who are called by my name, Second Chronicles 7 verse 14, will humble themselves and seek my face, then I will hear their prayer from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. But the key is, if they do that. And so Michael used Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 10 saying, Verse 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things, and it is full of evil. And all these people, they are doomed. But I want you to notice Jeremiah, the 26th chapter. When he sends Jeremiah to the people, and they've already been pretty much taken captive, they threaten Jeremiah's life. And in Jeremiah chapter 26 and verse 2, I want you to notice what the Lord says to Jeremiah. He says, stand in the court of the Lord's house, that would be in the temple, and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord all the words that I command to you to speak to them. Do not hold back a word. I want to stop right there. Tell everybody that comes to worship Every single word I tell you. Now notice the phrase, the verse 3. It may be that they will listen. And everyone turn from his evil way that I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. You tell them every word I've got to say because individuals, every one, may turn. We would know that they did not. But God was giving them a chance saying it is possible that they will. 
it would be the same thing of Judas. It was determined that someone was going to betray Jesus. Did Judas have to? Or did he choose to? Satan entered his heart there. He let Satan take over. Satan ruled his life. And he goes and he makes this decision. And he regretted that he made the decision. He went out and he wept bitterly. Could he have repented and handled things differently? Could he have said, I should not have betrayed my Lord, that was wrong, and gone back to his Lord and said, I am sorry. He could have, but he didn't. He went out and he hanged himself. God didn't make him do that. God may have known that he was going to do that. But that may be a very unusual case because God says, go tell him everything I've got to say. Because perhaps it may be that everyone will turn. Wes, I want you to appreciate you. uh, Boy, you laid it out beautifully. So let me just go through in closing and kind of look at at the different things you said. you went back to Isaiah. You said, I, I had rightfully uh, cited that. And uh, you said that just shows the difference between a living God and an idol. And that's right. He's exactly right. A living God knows everything. And that's what that passage shows. If we look at uh, Judas, I agree with you. Judas is not named in Psalm 109, but God applied it to him. But that still doesn't detract from the fact that Jesus already knew as he was sitting there, and, and during the prayer to the Father, he already knew what Judas would do. You look at Romans 9. Romans 9 is definitely talking about nations and what God will do with Egypt and what he will do with Abraham's people. But he also talks about the fate of people, the souls fitted to destruction in verse 22 within that context. God already knows. When God tests Abraham... God says, and and Wes stressed, now I know. Well, if you look at that and you understand that a test is also a proof that what God is doing there is in fact proving what he already knows. He gives Abraham the test. He runs the test to show the proof. Now I know means now I have seen. I have seen exactly what I knew Abraham would do and As Abraham ponders it in Hebrews 11, I don't know how this will all come out, but I do know God will work it out. That's exactly right, and God already had that planned, and we see the ram there and didn't have to kill Isaac and so forth. If we look at Ahab, King Ahab, it is clear God knew what Ahab would do. Micaiah, the prophet, even tells Ahab, God already knows what you'll do. You're going to go out there, you're going to get yourself killed, and in fact, you're going to lose your soul. And 1 Kings 22 clearly shows that. Time? Too bad. Cause no. <laughs> I'll close with that. Thank you for your participation tonight. Romans 9, verse 22, Michael just said, souls fitted for destruction. I looked up that word that he said, souls. The word is vessels. That's what your translation probably says, even the King James as well. Right? It's a vessel. It is something that is used. It doesn't have to be someone's soul. 
could just be that someone is used for destruction, kind of like Pharaoh was. Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and then the Lord continued to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he might show his power and he might show his thing. He didn't make Pharaoh do that to begin with. He used a person that was already going to not listen. Just like in the days of Jesus. Jesus would say, many are called, but few are chosen. My friend Michael here would say, well, that means not everyone is going to believe. And only certain people are chosen to believe. Well, that means it was foreordained what you were going to do and you didn't have any choice in the matter. That is where his argument is, is that if God already knows what I'm going to do, he basically has made me do that. I don't have a choice in the matter. What we see all throughout scripture is that we do have a choice. And God allows us to make choices. He knows our hearts. He probably knows, he has the ability to absolutely know what we are going to do. But I think there are some times where it's like, You would see this with Exodus. I will go down and I will see. He lets things be in individuals. And he says, you know what? Here's a test. Job. It's a test, right? He said, man, there's no one more righteous, blameless than him. You go down there. Just don't don't touch his. Just don't touch him in that way. I say all this to say our time is up. Without... If God knows everything as to our eternal fate, we have no choice in the matter. It is already determined what we will do. Do you have the invitation or do I have the invitation? Thank you very much. Alright. So the real Michael comes back up here. What we learned in the debate tonight is that I'm Wes's friend even though I'm a Calvinist, but nonetheless. No, seriously speaking. Um, this issue that we just looked at, obviously we, we've debated different things. We've debated things, of course, we've had three debates now, or, or at least we're in the third one. In the first one, I, su- I suppose that everybody pretty much gathered here, at least to some degree, believed the same thing. The second debate we probably didn't have anyone who believed the, you know, that the Lord's Supper could be on a different day, and yet at the same time we knew right here in this area that was a heated discussion. But this debate hits at the very core of our hope of heaven, our hope for hell. Um, and when I say that, I mean because hope is expectation. So I want us to look at Matthew. I put Matthew 25 up uh, on one of the charts, but I didn't, I didn't really even cite the passage. I just had it up there. And I said we both believe that our eternal destination is one place or the other. And we do. Wes and I are agreed on this. Um, we live our lives, and this debate, I think, exposes what most, if not every Christian, questions in their life. And, and that is, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> do I really have a choice about where I'm going to spend eternity? Now, all debating aside and everything we looked at tonight, uh, and we'll come back next Sunday and look at, 
there would be no need for us to be gathered. There would be no need for me to preach or anything else if I didn't believe we had that choice. That God offers real choice to us that we choose to live our lives a certain way. And depending on what we do, then heaven or hell is, is the eternal destiny. If you look at Matthew 25, I'm not going to read all of these verses for sake of time, but just notice, beginning in verse 31, there is a day coming. Jesus is going to return with all his holy angels, and he's going to, we could add other passages, but he's going in groups, call people up into the air to stand before him. And all that are dead, who have ever died, who have ever lived in this world and died, they're going to be called to stand before him. And all the living are going to then be changed and raised into the air, and they're going to stand before him. And Jesus is going to leave no doubt from the beginning of that scene, from the beginning of that judgment, where you're going. Um, he's going to divide them, as you can see easily, beginning in verse 32. He's going to divide them on his right and his left into what he calls the sheep and the goats here. But here's what it's going to come down to. Maybe not, you know, who won a war for me, who built the greatest temple or cathedral in the world for me, but it's going to come down to some simple, everyday things you chose. I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was naked. Uh, I needed to be taken care of, whether that was, you know, maybe imprisoned and arrested for something like persecution or whatever it might be. I needed your help. And some of you did that for me. When did we do that? Well, when you did it even to the least of these, my brethren. Others of you turned a cold heart and a deaf ear to it. You didn't. When did we do that? When you did not do it to the least of these, my brethren. I can imagine there will be multitudes of people who will look at Jesus and say, you mean my salvation came down to that? And that's exactly what it comes down to. Everyday living, everyday choices you make. I will hurt somebody today, I will help somebody today. If they're thirsty, I'll give them drink. If they're being tempted to sin, I'll help strengthen them instead of pulling them down. All of those simple choices we make day in, day out. And then you'll notice in verse 46... Some will go away into everlasting punishment. Others will go away into life eternal. We may get caught up in a debate and in a question and even worry. What's it all for? God already knows that it doesn't matter what I choose to do. Regardless of what verses we read or what we think we understand, God is a just God. God is saying, you really do have choice. Choose to do what's right. Don't think that it comes down to some great act or whatever that you accomplish in life. It will come down to those simple, everyday things. And it will depend on that where you go. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, if you believe in Jesus and trust Him, that He is the Son of God who will be fair with you, who loves you and wants you to be with Him. If you'll confess that belief, if you'll repent, and be baptized for forgiveness of your sins. You can be with the Lord forever. That's your choice. And maybe it is that you're here tonight and you've chosen to be baptized, but you've not lived your life the way you should. And you know that. There are things, little things, as we might look at them, that you've chosen on a day-in, day-out basis, and they're wrong, and you know it. And you want to ask for forgiveness, you want to ask for us to pray together with you. Please come while we stand and stand.